Well, as you're taking your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Luke chapter 4. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Utilize that resource to find your way through this book with lots of other books in it. We've been studying the Gospel of Luke under a series titled, um, A Story for Sinners and Sufferers. Recognizing that that's what the story of Jesus is all about. That it is about Jesus, but it is a story for us. It's a story that Jesus um, has scripted. It's a story that Jesus has stepped into to write all that is gone wrong in our lives. And actually, this series of uh, looking at the story of Jesus in the book of Luke, that title could also represent well the, the, the theme of the entire Bible, that the Bible communicates one story that is for sinners and sufferers like us, a story of redemption and salvation and Kind of the thrust of which was set in the very beginning of the Bible when God created the heavens and the earth and he created man and woman in his own image and he placed them in the Garden of Eden where they enjoyed fellowship with him that was free and full of life. But then we're told not long after, at the, after all that went down that a serpent slithered up and we learn later in the story that this serpent was the embodiment of Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, and he slithered up and began to engage Eve in a conversation with Adam standing silently by and together Eve and Adam uh, exercised a faithlessness that spoiled the world. They did not trust in the goodness of God and they bought into the temptation that he was putting before them and that just wrecked everything. So that immediately after Adam and Eve distrusted God and they did not do the things that he was, that he gave them freedom to do in the Garden of Eden and not do the one thing he told them not to do because it would destroy them. They went that route anyways. And so they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they they ate it and it wrecked the world. And immediately after that happened, you have this moment where the Lord comes walking through the garden again and he hangs out with Adam and Eve for another time and he tells them what's about to go wrong with things. And he explains to them that their relationship with each other is about to go haywire. That the harmony they once enjoyed with him and with one another is going to be replaced with alienation and hostility and all this strife and struggle. And and then he also in that moment called out the serpent and he called out Satan and he kind of set the trajectory for his story of redemption by telling the serpent that one day A seed is going to come from the woman. A descendant is going to come from Eve and Adam. And this descendant, the seed, is going to be your demise. You thought you were going to wreck my plans and purposes for my people in paradise. But I'm I'm going to do things now that's going to make what they enjoyed in Eden just pale in comparison to what they will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. And all of this is going to happen because of what you were going to do to the seed of this woman when you bruise his heel. But understand, in Genesis 3.15, he says, this seed is going to crush your head. He's going to destroy you. And when he destroys you and all that you were about, sin, suffering, death, when he destroys all of that, I will begin the process of making all things new. And so the storyline of the Bible would unfold towards the, the revelation of the seed, the descendant of Eve and Adam who would come to set everything right. 
And there was a passage that we kind of leaped over uh, last week, I believe, uh, at the end of chapter 3. We're giving a genealogy of Jesus. And if you were to read through that genealogy at the end of chapter 3, do you understand that it traces Jesus' heritage, his ancestry, all the way back to Adam? And the reason Luke does that is because what he's about to do by resisting temptation from the devil in the wilderness, what he's about to do as he moves throughout the region, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, he's now, that agenda of making all things new is underway. That the seed of Eve and the son of Adam has appeared. And he's come in the person of Jesus to make all things new. And so what I want to do this morning is look at a passage beginning in verse 16 of chapter 4 where a passage that puts three questions before us. Three simple questions that I just want our hearts to receive the answers to and I want our hearts to, to revel in the beauty of what this passage tells us about the mission and the ministry of Jesus. This passage is going to tell us what the mission and ministry of Jesus is all about. This passage is going to put before us who the mission and ministry of Jesus is for. Who are those who will benefit from this agenda of making all things new? Who's going to benefit and be blessed in light of all that? And then lastly, I want us to think about how the mission and the ministry of Jesus is completed. How, do, how is it accomplished? Well, let's look first at the what. What did Jesus come into the world to do? Why did the the son of Adam step into the world to to make all things new? What what was his mission and his ministry? You pick up in verse 16. This is what we're told. Now, this kind of launches Jesus' public ministry. He's, He's going public to do the work of the Messiah. And this is sort of when all that kicks off. Verse 16 says that Jesus came to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. This is where he grew up. It's where his parents, Mary and Joseph, lived. That's where their address was. That was their zip code. This was their, a very familiar place for him. People knew who Jesus was that saw him grow up in Nazareth. And then he goes on. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Circle these words. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So he steps into Nazareth and he does what he usually does. The Sabbath is rolled around and he goes to church, so to speak. He steps into the synagogue. He's present with the people of Israel who were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. This was his custom. This was his rhythm. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about establishing some gospel-oriented rhythms to our days, to our weeks, to our months, to our years, so that we might grow in our faith and lean into the life that Christ came to give. And so Jesus is setting a pattern here. As usual, he's gathering with God's people. This is what he did. So he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, Jesus found the place where it was written. And he quotes now from the prophet Isaiah. He basically splices two verses together. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 and Isaiah 58 verse 3. This powerful passage that prophesies what the mission and the ministry of the Messiah would do. So it says the spirit of the Lord or Jesus reads the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then Jesus began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. And this scripture's fulfilling gives us a picture of what the mission and the ministry of Jesus is all about. Now he does step into the synagogue and and basically what happens on the Sabbath when worshipers would gather there, they would follow a very similar liturgy, a, a rhythm to their worship. Every week they would do similar things. The gathering in the synagogue would start with some singing, very similar to what we do. They would sing from the Psalms and they would sing God's word back to God as they gathered together. Then there would usually be a recitation of a scripture. They would recite normally the Shema. The Shema was uh, a reference to a passage in the book of Deuteronomy that spoke of the oneness of God. And they would say together here, O Israel, the Lord is one God. The Lord is one. And then they would move into a time of benediction where about 18 benedictions that the people memorized, they would recite those together. They would say them over and over again. And then someone would grab the Bible, the Old Testament, open it up, and they would have two readings. Someone would read from what's called the Torah. The Torah means law, and that's a reference to the first five books in the Old Testament. The first five books is really one book, five volumes of one section known as the Torah or the law of God. And then they would move into a reading from the prophets. They would open up Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Habakkuk or Obadiah or any of the other hard names to pronounce in the Old Testament. They would read from these sections of Scripture. Well, on this occasion, Jesus was either asked or he volunteered to do that portion of the gathering. So he stood up to read and he selected or it might have been selected for him. The, this passage from the book of Isaiah. And after he would read it, he then went and he sat down, which is where the teachers kind of did normally in the first synagogue. The, the person who was teaching, who was giving the exposition from the scripture, they would do so while seated down. It was the, the teacher's seat or the seat of authority. And said, so Jesus sat down and everybody's looking at him, waiting for word. What, what does this passage mean? And then Jesus shocks the room. He shocks the room by declaring in this moment that this passage is being fulfilled in your hearing. You hearing me read this text is fulfilling this word. The mission and the ministry of Jesus has begun. The Messiah is here. This is what Jesus is declaring when he makes that statement. He's saying the one this passage pointed to is now sitting among you. And he begins to proclaim, he begins to preach. And so as you think about the mission and ministry of Jesus, just kind of a side note that I want to point out is that you have to recognize the kind of the, the primacy of preaching and teaching the Bible, the, the primacy of preaching and teaching the scriptures that existed in Jesus's mission and in his ministry. If you look at the passage he quotes in Isaiah 61, he, in Isaiah 58, three times the word preach or proclaim is used. That his mission, his ministry involved the, the ministry of the word. And usually the way Jesus would do it and usually the way the apostles would do it in the book of Acts is that they would declare a passage of scripture. They would read it and then they would explain it. And then they would follow Jesus' example and saying, okay, this passage, it's talking about him. 
And this is sort of the pattern and the rhythm that you and I continue to follow today, that we are committed to the ministry of the word because we recognize that in the mission and the ministry of Jesus, the agenda of the kingdom of God, the one ministry that we cannot do without is the ministry of the word. Now, there's a lot of things that we do as churches. There's a lot of things that we do as citizens in the kingdom of God. We We want to see justice unfold in the world. We want to see the marginalized cared for. We want to feed the hungry and care for the sick. We want to do all those gospel-oriented things. We want to dignify image bearers with those ministries. But the one ministry we cannot do without is the ministry of the word. Once the word ceases to occupy a central position in the life of the church, we cease to be who Jesus has called and is recreating us to be. Now, here's the irony of that. When we have the ministry of the word operating in the life of the church, the ministry of the word is the, won't let us do without any other kind of ministry. That if we're really listening to God's voice in the scriptures... If we're opening the Bible and reading them, explaining them, and having every eye turn towards Jesus, if we're really doing that, the ministry of the word won't let us do without any kind of ministry. It will become the fuel, the the source of all the things that we do here in the city of Seattle as we follow in Jesus' example, giving ourselves to the ministry of the word. Now, we love church history. We love to learn about guys like Calvin and Luther and Augustine and all these influential figures who handled the word and took the Bible seriously. We, We love those guys, but we don't do what we do because of them. We do what we do because of Jesus. We do what we do because the early church in the book of Acts would do what Jesus does here. They would devote themselves to the, what was called the teaching of the apostles, which was in shorthand for the ministry of the word, for explaining the Bible, interpreting the Bible, and showing how the Bible leads people to Jesus. So what we want to see in the ministry of our church is we want to see every eye in our faith family fixed on Jesus. And how do we call attention to Jesus? Well, we show who Jesus is from the scriptures. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, I'm the one this passage is about and every eye is fixed on him. You want to talk about worship. You want to talk about the goal of our worship every week? That's what we're trying to accomplish. We want to get to a point in our time together where every eye here is fixed on Christ and Christ alone. So that you are looking at the crucified and risen Savior and your heart is being warmed by the reality of what he stepped into the world to do for sinners and sufferers like you. And so we consider this here, Jesus modeling that for us. Now, one of the things that Jesus does here is, hey, he kind of cuts Isaiah 61 short. He gets to a moment where he says in verse 19 that I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But if you were to go back to Isaiah 61, you'll see that Jesus is pausing here, that there's more to what Isaiah 61 says. And actually, the the rest of what Isaiah 61 says is kind of alarming. It's kind of unsettling. Because if you keep reading in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, you're going to hear the prophet talk about the day of God's vengeance. And it's a reference to judgment. But here in this moment, Jesus stops short of that. Now, he doesn't stop short of that because, he doesn't, it's because he's not saying that day doesn't exist or that that day isn't coming to be. He stops short of that because right now is the day of favor. 
Right now is the time you and I have to hear about the mission and the ministry of Jesus and to respond in ways that are life-giving. Right now is that day. And so we proclaim favor. We proclaim grace. We warn when the scriptures tell us to warn and we give people a heads up about other, the other day that is coming. But right now what we do is we are wooing people with the goodness of Jesus. We are wooing people with the mission and the ministry of the Messiah. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He reads the text. He says, this is ultimately about me. I am the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one Genesis 3.15 was speaking about. Because this story for sinners and sufferers has been taking place for a long time. And it's reaching its climax here with the Messiah. So what is the mission and the ministry of Jesus? Well, if you look at that passage from the book of Isaiah, you can summarize it by saying the mission of Jesus is to bring salvation. It's to bring redemption. The mission and the ministry of Jesus is to make all things new. That's what he's come to do. Now, who is it that benefits from what he stepped into the world to do? How do you know if you are going to get in on what the mission and the ministry of Jesus is all about. Well, again, you look at the passage he quotes and you kind of see a few categories of people that are put forth as sort of uh, metaphors, as illustrations of the human condition that Jesus has come to solve. He refers to the poor. He refers to captives. He refers to the blind. He refers to the oppressed. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that I'm here to do things for people that they can't do for themselves. Now, if you think about the poor, understand that Luke's gospel does emphasize the materially poor in a concentrated way. But I think if we, but I don't think that gives us the freedom to walk away from Luke's gospel and think that Jesus only comes to bring salvation to those who are materially poor. And the reason for that is because here in Nazareth, Nazareth was a poor town. And what you're going to find as we keep reading through the story is that most of the people in that town who were poor rejected Jesus. They did not benefit from what the Messiah came to do because they did not receive him. They reject him, as you'll see at the end of the story. And then you're also going to see here in a moment, Jesus tell a story from the Old Testament about a rich man, a powerful man, who benefits from the ministry of a prophet who comes on behalf of the Lord to, to heal him and to rescue him from leprosy that was going to destroy his body. And so you do have materially wealthy people. Powerful people benefiting from the mission and the ministry of Jesus. And so we would be mistaken to walk away from this story and think that the gospel is only good news for those who are materially poor. No, the poor here represents the human condition in a, in a universal sense. It's what Jesus would make very clear in Matthew chapter 6 when he lays out who are the blessed in the world. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those whose spirit is impoverished because it is alienated from the God who created it. Whose spirit doesn't have what God wants it to have because of their lack of faith and trust in his goodness and in his grace. And so when we think about the poor in this passage, we're talking about people who can't buy their way out of that condition. We're talking about hum the human condition that cannot purchase its way out of its fallenness. 
So this category speaks to the types of people Jesus comes to rescue and to redeem and to make new people who cannot do this for themselves. They are poor. But then he goes on and he refers to the captives and he's saying these are the types of people that can't squeeze their way out of their captivity. They can't sneak out of it. They can't escape from the cell that they are in. They need someone to come from outside of them to open the door so that they might go free. I received a picture of this that I've shared with you before when I was babysitting my nephew Jabin and Jabin made a mess in the kitchen. He opened up a big family-sized bottle of dishwashing liquid. He smeared it all over the floor and he took his hands and just started wiping it all over the place. And when I walked into the kitchen, he got scared. He perked up and ran away down in the hallway, closed the door in his room and just set himself in there trying to hide from me. A few moments later, I hear this slapping on the doorknob. Jabin wanted out of his room, but he couldn't get a grip on the knob because his hands were too sloppy. His hands were too messy. The dishwashing liquid wouldn't let him get a grip. Well, this is essentially the human condition. That we are captives. We have cut ourselves off from the goodness and the great from the goodness of God and what he intends for us. And on the other side of ourselves, we can't get out. We need someone from outside of us to come to us with a stronger grip to turn that knob and open it up so that we might go free. This is what the Messiah has come to do. This is the mission and the ministry of Jesus. He's come for captives. But then we're also told he came for the blind, people who can't see well enough to get out of darkness. I learned this again the hard way a few weeks ago when I was bringing some books out of my office and this whole sanctuary was pitch black and the sun had gone down. I couldn't see a thing. And, and for some reason, I didn't take the time to turn the light on, which would have made it a lot easier for me to get out of this space. Instead, I just start walking right across the stage, forgetting there's a stage. And I stepped and fell flat on my face, spilling everything in my hands, uh, tightening my back as I hit the floor in a very terrible, terrible way. I couldn't see. Well, Jesus is saying this is what the human condition is like. The human condition is like being blind. People groping around in a, in a dark room and they can't see to get themselves out. So what do they need? They need someone to come and turn the light on for them to give them sight. And this is what Jesus says that he's come to do. I've come to recover your vision, to help you see life as God intended it to be so that you can walk out of this world and into the new one that is to come. And one of the unique things about this mission and ministry is that blindness, healing the blind, was a particular, was a particular ministry that the Messiah would do. Which is why you don't really see much in the New Testament. Actually, you don't see really any examples of anyone other than Jesus healing the blind or giving sight to the blind. It seems to be a ministry that was peculiarly tied to the ministry of the Messiah because it illustrated what he does. When you meet Jesus, he turns the light on in your soul. When you meet Jesus, he opens your eyes so that you can see the glory of God's kingdom and the goodness of our God through his crucifixion and his resurrection. But then the other dynamic is an oppressed group, an oppressed people. Now, those listening to Jesus in the synagogue, they know what it means to be oppressed. This is the people of Israel. They've been oppressed many times before. They've been taken captive and exiled to Babylon and 
in this moment. They've been, their land is occupied by the Roman Empire. They know what it means to be an oppressed people where someone other than the law and the Lord is ruling over them. They know what that feels like. And so Jesus drops good news on them. I'm here to set you free. Now, most of the people in the synagogue expected the Messiah to lead a military revolution. That's sort of what they wanted. They got so far from what the Old Testament communicated about the type of the Messiah he would be, that he would come in might and military exploits, and he would fight and conquer whoever the military political oppressor is. That's what the Messiah would do. But Jesus comes and says, look, I'm, I'm not here to bring that type of liberation, at least not yet. I'm here to deal with your deepest oppressor. I'm here to set you free from bondage to sin. I'm here to set you free from the principality, the prince and principalities and the rulers of this present darkness. The, the demonic and satanic influences that affect and influence me, people in terrible ways. I'm here to set you free from death. And he knows that as an oppressed people, those who are oppressed by sin, Satan, and death, we can't fight our way out of our oppression. You can't fight yourself free from sin. You can't fight your way free from demonic influence and demonic oppression and demonic captivity. You can't fight yourself free from death. And so Jesus says, look, I've come to deal with that oppression I'm here to deal with what's really affecting the human condition because I'm strong enough to. And so he drops this word and then he says, look, in all of this, it's ultimately about me. Eyes are fixed on him. Then you pick up in verse 22 and you kind of shift gears. You kind of move from, from the message in the synagogue to kind of the small group after the synagogue, this sermon-based small group study that tends to, tended to happen right after the exposition of the scriptures. And people would talk about it, very similar to what goes down in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, similar rhythm. Someone stands, reads the scriptures, explains the scriptures, applies the scriptures, and then people talk about it to try to apply it to their lives and figure out what's going on. We do something similar here in our church. But look at verse 22. This is the discussion that went, went on. It says, They were all speaking well of Jesus and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? They were amazed by his words. And, and interpreting that, some see that as sort of a, uh, an awe statement. That some people are in awe. Isn't this Joseph's son saying these wonderful things? That's awesome. Others think it's kind of an ad hominem attack that Jesus has said some great things. Isn't this Joseph's son? And elsewhere in another gospel where we're told that they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? This isn't someone special. Who is he to say these things and to make these claims? And so rather than dealing with what was said, they start talking about the person who's saying it. This is an ad hominem attack. This is one of the reasons we're so rhetorically sideways in our culture because this is the type of attack that happens all the time. People don't deal with positions. They don't deal with arguments. They deal with people. They try to discredit sources. That's the world we live in now. But we see once again in the scriptures that, nothing, that there's nothing new under the sun. And so you have this, have this ad hominem attack. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus speaks to them. Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. And he quotes this proverb, doctor, heal yourself. And 
It's interesting because this proverb is very similar to what the third temptation earlier was in the chapter when the devil met with Jesus in the wilderness and tempted him three times. The third temptation was a temptation towards self-justification. It was a temptation to test God and to prove himself as the son of God. Well, this is essentially what Jesus is saying the people are doing now. They're tempting him in the same way. Doctor, heal yourself. If you are the Messiah, prove it. And so we begin to find now the, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, who's going to benefit from the mission and the ministry of Jesus? Well, we know he's come to deal with the fallen human condition in all of its struggle. But who will actually benefit? Who's going to be blessed by the mission and the ministry of Jesus? Well, after this statement is made, Jesus then goes into a story and he tells two stories from the Old Testament. Stories that were designed to showcase the types of people who will benefit from the mission and the ministry of the Messiah. And what you begin to find as you read through these two stories is that part of the answer to the question is those who will benefit from the mission and ministry of Jesus is those who do not uh, test the Messiah, but those who would trust the Messiah. Those who would not insist that the Messiah conforms to their personal agenda, but people who would conform to his miraculous agenda, his life-saving agenda. So it's not, Jesus, do for us what we tell you to do. It's, Jesus, we'll do whatever you tell us to do. It's a different mentality. It's a different approach to Jesus. So, So what he does, verse 24, he tells a couple of stories. He then said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, but I say to you, There were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So two stories Jesus tells. The first story is about a guy named Elijah who was one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel and how Elijah interacted with a widow uh, in this place called Zarephath. Now what's intriguing about that is that this widow was non-Jewish. And so this is one of the things that Luke wants to point out and drive home, that the Messiah is for all people, not just the Jewish people. He's for all people, not just the Israeli people. This is the savior of the world. And so he tells these two stories, both of which illustrate people being blessed by God's representative, by God's prophet, who were not ethnically Jewish. They did not subscribe to the Jewish faith. But then you keep, you look a little closer at this story and you find the story of a widow. Now a widow back in the day was as low as you could get on the socioeconomic Order. It was, this was a person who was dependent upon others to take care of them. This woman had no husband. Her husband had died, but she did have a child, a little kid that she was responsible for. And the story makes it very clear that this woman was poor. She was destitute. And to make matters worse, she was living in the middle of a famine, which meant the food bank she depended upon was empty. Everyone was hoarding supplies and hoarding resources, trying to survive the famine, and some people's needs were being overlooked. You have a small glimpse of this as you've endured the pandemic, and you remember the hoarding that went on when everything happened. I remember being at Costco, and I got my allotment of toilet paper and, and paper towels in my bin. I turned my back for 30 seconds. I turned around, and it was gone, and somebody stole my toilet paper and my paper towels out of my buggy at the beginning of the pandemic. 
This idea of scarcity would drive people to do silly things. Well, this was the world, but in a much more serious sense, the world that this widow was occupying. And then the Lord sent Elijah to her. And once Elijah showed up, Elijah being a prophet of God, he comes to her and and he asks for bread. He has the audacity to ask this widow for food who's trying to feed her son and take care of herself during a famine. And so she looks at Elijah and she says, I don't have any food to spare. And he kind of, she tries to turn him away, but then listen to what Elijah says in chapter 17. First Kings chapter 17, this is Elijah's response. Then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. And that's simply saying she's doing according to the word of God because Elijah was a prophet. Then the woman, woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. It's a remarkable moment where this woman responds with faith to what the Lord was saying to her. Now, that's story number one. Just kind of hold that there. Look at story number two. And then Elijah's disciple, a guy named Elisha, who would also serve the Lord as a prophet after Elijah leaves the world, a guy named Elisha has another similar experience, only this time it's not with a widow who is destitute and poor, it's with a military figure for the Syrian army who is strong and powerful and influential, the polar opposite on the spectrum. But this military commander who led conquests on behalf of Syria... During one of those conquests, he captured a young Israeli girl and brought her back to his hometown. In the process, he contracted leprosy. He got sick. And this little unnamed Israeli girl told him, said, hey, there's a prophet in Samaria who could heal your disease. There's a guy that God's working in and working through. You should go see him. And and so he was desperate, took this girl's advice, went and met with Elisha. Now, when this Naaman showed up at Elisha's doorstep, he came in a lot of pomp and fanfare. I mean, all the bells and whistles of a parade were present there as he showed up to town because this is kind of the proud man that he was. And and he met with Elisha and listened to the exchange in 2 Kings chapter 5. Then Elisha sent him, Naaman, a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. So you want to be healed. This is what the Lord is telling you to do. Go wash seven times in the Jordan River. But then you look at verse 11. Naaman got angry and left. He got mad because that wasn't the agenda he wanted to be given. He wanted to come and set the agenda. He wanted to come and say what should be done in order for him to be healed. And so he left saying, I was telling myself, he will surely come out, stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. But all this stuff about me going and putting myself in the Jordan River of all places, that's silly. That's ridiculous. That's not what I was expecting to hear. And so he had an agenda. The Lord had a different agenda. The problem is the only way he's going to be blessed is if he comes to the Lord's agenda and drops his own. 
And he was so proud, he was biased and prejudiced against the Jordan River. He was thinking about the rivers in his hometown and thought, our rivers are much cleaner. And he would go on in the exchange and say, couldn't I just go back and jump into one of our own rivers? They're, they're a lot cleaner. They're a lot nicer. I'll do that maybe. And then he returns home and he still has his disease. And he's, some friends kind of speak some sense into him. Why don't you even just try it? Listen to the word of Israel's God and do what he says. And so he does return. He finally humbles himself. And in verse 14, we're told that Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God, according to the word of the Lord. And then his skin was restored and because like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. So he was healed. Why? Because he dropped his agenda. He conformed to the Lord. So you take these two stories together and you find the kinds of people who are going to benefit from the mission and the ministry of Jesus. The kinds of people who will be blessed in the new heavens and the new earth. The kinds of people whose fallen human condition is going to be set right are those who are marked by two traits. One is faith. A faith that says, I'm going to listen to what Jesus tells me and I'm going to believe his word and I'm going to align my life with what he says. That's what faith does. Faith is an exercise. Faith is a practice. Faith isn't simply saying, I believe something exists. Faith is aligning your life up with that which exists. This is why James would talk about in his letter, I don't want you just to be a hearer of the word. I want you to be a doer. You need a faith that acts. He says, even, the de even demons believe that God exists, but believing that God exists isn't going to lead you to the blessing of the kingdom of God. So you want a faith that acts, a faith that responds, a faith that does the word, doesn't just hear the word. This is what you see in both stories. Both Naaman and the widow acted in faith. Now, it took Naaman a little time to get there, but eventually he got there. Which brings us to the second trait. Not only faith, you have humility. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are willing to humble yourself in order to do so. And humility often sounds like my agenda is off course. I need your agenda, Jesus. That's what humility is. That's what humility sounds like and looks like. It's a willingness to say, Jesus says this, I'm going to trust him. I might not fully understand it. I might not initially agree with it, but I'm going to humble myself and move in Jesus' direction. Because what's the alternative? Well, we're told in two places in the New Testament that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. That if the year of the Lord's favor is going to be acquired in your life, it's not going to come if you're too proud to humble yourself and listen to what Jesus is telling you. So when Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus says that, how do you respond? You have another agenda for the Lord and how salvation should come. Do You have an agenda that says, look, that sounds too narrow. That sounds too exclusive. And so I expect God to treat us like this. And so you write your own script. Or are you listening to the word of God through Jesus, who is the embodiment of the word of God, who expresses the true and final word 
of God? Are you listening to him and doing what he says so that if he says, come to me, you come to him? And you will find in other gospels moments when a voice from heaven rings out and and God the Father would say of God the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him and do what he says. You can trust this guy. He's the Messiah. And so you want to answer the question, who is the mission and the ministry of Jesus for? Well, it is for those who believe in humility. It is for those whose ego, egos aren't too big to hold them back from the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus would say, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads into the kingdom. Narrow is the gate that leads into eternal life. And he goes on to say that few people find it. Why is that? Well, because our egos are too big. Our egos are too big to fit through the narrow gate. And so we have to check ourselves. This is how we benefit from the mission and the ministry of Jesus. We humble ourselves and we do what he says. Even if he's saying, I want you to jump in this river, not that one. I want you to listen to this Jesus, this Savior, this Lord. Not any other Savior or Lord that you can dream up for yourself. But then that brings us to the question, how? If humility is this dynamic of conforming to the Lord's agenda, how is the mission and the ministry accomplished? What will Jesus do that will make all of this a reality for sinners and sufferers like us, that will give us hope? Well, we're, it's what, how the Messiah will do this is hinted at beginning in verse 28. It says, when they heard this, that is all the people in Nazareth who were in earshot of Jesus, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. It didn't go well for Jesus. This sermon fell flat. He thought, hey, I'm opening the Bible. I'm explaining it. I'm interpreting it. People are going to love it. That's not how it ended. Instead, people were enraged by what Jesus was saying. They didn't like the example of Naaman and the example of this widow who would benefit and be blessed by the word of the Lord. They didn't like that, so they'd get angry. And it says, they got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him off a cliff. They wanted to kill Jesus. But notice verse 30. But Jesus passed right through the crowd like Houdini. Nobody could touch him. He passed right through the crowd and went on his way. That's the key. Jesus is clearly in control of the situation. And he has his way. And his way isn't going to be sidetracked by an unruly, unbelieving crowd. No one's going to keep him from following his way. No one's going to keep Jesus from going where he was sent to go and from doing what he was sent to do. And his way, as you read through the Gospel of Luke, is going to take him all the way to Jerusalem. To the heart of the religious establishment and the religious order. It's going to take him to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, the people are going to respond to him in a way very similar to how they respond in Nazareth. At first, they were excited about what Jesus was saying. And then they were angry, angered by what Jesus was saying. Well, when Jesus' way leads him to Jerusalem, you remember the crowds of the people? Salvation, Hosanna, salvation has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everyone's excited about Jesus' arrival. But then how does the story end? It ends with those same voices that at one time heralded the coming of Jesus are now hating him and they reject him and they grab hold of him and eventually crucify him. And this time, that 
agenda succeeds because this time he was fulfilling what his heavenly father had sent him to fulfill. That Jesus would be taken captive so that captives like you and I might be set free. This is his way. You see it quite literally when there's a criminal by the name of Barabbas who was destined to die. And yet you have this moment where the overseer of, that, of this uh, legal and religious right where one prisoner would be set free and spared from death that, that the people would clamor for. And there comes a moment where the people clamor for Barabbas. Barabbas. They want Barabbas to go free. And they want Jesus to stay in captivity. They want Barabbas to live and they want Jesus to die. And Jesus is in control of the situation enough to say, okay, that's what I've come to do anyways. And so you, have, you literally have a prisoner exchange at the end of the gospel. And that prisoner exchange represents what goes down in the heart of every believing person who humbles themselves before the grace of God. A prisoner exchange takes place. And you find the oppressed, you find captives, you find the blind going free and seeing the kingdom of God afresh and anew. Why? Well, because Jesus took our place. Not to be hurled off a cliff, but, be, but to be hung on a cross. This is how he would accomplish his mission. Jesus came to give his life for sinners and sufferers like us. To take our place. There's a sense in which when Jesus died on the cross, he was deconstructed. He was uncreated. And that same exchange of Jesus being uncreated is so that you and I might be recreated. That we might be made new. And so after Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was placed in a tomb, but he wasn't placed there to rot and to deteriorate and to decompose. He He was there three days, then we were told he stepped out of the tomb. And he resurrected to new life. He resurrected as the first fruit of the new creation. So that when you look at Jesus in his resurrected body, you see a picture of your future as a follower of his. As those who are believing and trusting in Jesus, you're seeing in him an illustration of where your future is heading. And the future for all those who hear him and believe in him, who trust him. Our future doesn't end in a grave. Our future will end in glory. Because that's the mission and the ministry of Jesus. Now you know that there's more to the story because you and I are still here today and everything hasn't been made new yet. We're still enduring life in a fallen world. We're still walking through a world that is not our home. And, and so we want to think then also, how is the mission and ministry of Jesus accomplished? Well, you keep reading through Luke's writings and you discover that the ministry of Jesus, the declaration, the proclamation of this, this year of the Lord's favor is to take place through the ministry of the church. This is why when Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news, he would also tell his disciples, there's coming a day when the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and anoint you to preach and to proclaim good news, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then you get to the book of Acts, which is the second volume of Luke's gospel. You have Luke and then you have Acts. Acts begins with these words. I wrote the first narrative, that is the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication there is that Jesus is still doing, he's still teaching. He's still proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, but who's doing it? Who's the voice piece? Who are the mouthpieces for it? Well, it's you and me. He's advancing his ministry. He's accomplishing his mission through the work of the church. And so we want to showcase an unwavering commitment to this reality. And if it means that we suffer along the way, so be it. As Jesus suffered along the way, his way was marked with suffering. But his way ended in glory. And that brings us back to Hebrews where we started today's gathering. Hebrews chapter 13. You remember the passage. We read earlier that Jesus suffered outside the gate. He was rejected. He was pushed outside of Jerusalem. And there he suffered so that he might sanctify, set apart the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him. We join Jesus outside the gate. We join Jesus sharing in his sufferings, knowing that sufferings will not defeat us, but the Lord will turn all of our tragedies into triumph, all of our burdens into blessing. All of our groans will give way to glory. This is what it means to join Jesus outside of the camp, making his way our way. That's what people of faith and people of humility do. And so how is Jesus accomplishing his ministry today in the city of Seattle? It's through you. And it's through me. It's through us together. Being willing to not settle in here. So that we start treating this world as if it's our home. Because it's not. We're moving towards a better one. A home that will last forever. And when you fix your eyes on that reality, you're set free to be God's people right now through thick and thin, living out faith and humility all the days of your life. And you can say, come what may. Come what may. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, to live the life that he lived, one that we cannot live and do in our own strength because we're too weak thank you for sending Jesus to the cross where he would die in our place thank you God for resurrecting Jesus from the grave conquering sin, Satan and death so that we might find life and hope in him, God we love you and we pray to live in light of that reality that your agenda would be our agenda all the days of our lives. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.